want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me just kind of, I'm not going to do a recap of last week, but last week you might recall, if you were with us or uh, live-streamed with us, that um, John almost kind of took a pause, because if you look at the letters of John, especially his gospel and his three epistles, there's a lot of exhortation, there's a lot of uh, commands, there's a lot of um, watch-out warnings, but John, in a sense, took a pause last week at the end of chapter 3, and the way I envision it, so to speak, is John basically gives this, this huge theological hug, and he says, you know what, life is tough, and you're getting blindsided and bombarded by all kinds of things from left to right. Some are expected, some are unexpected, and you know what? That can cause us to doubt. That can cause us to be discouraged in our faith. That can cause us to kind of wonder, like, where do I really stand with God? And John just comes up and goes, hey, let me just reaffirm what God says about you. Let me just encourage your hearts. Remember what we ta- what John, the, the, the context or the audience in which John was addressing, he wasn't talking about or addressing those who were professing believers but not really walking with Jesus. He was talking to professing believers who were doubting their faith, who were struggling in their faith, who were wondering, am I really right with God? Am I really accepted by God? And how do I know if I am or not? And so John reminds us, here's the truths that we turn to. Here's what we can look to. Here are the promises of God to you. Therefore, rest in God's finished work on your behalf. But, as John typically does, he takes a time out, he hugs us, he says, hey, rest. But also, on the heels of that rest is a warning to us. uh, Because I love you, because I care about you, because I care about Christ's church, I want you to realize that there are also fierce wolves that are coming in to devour, to cause dissension and disunity in the church that, that Jesus died for and gave his life for. And so he tells us in our text in chapter four this morning of that warning, of that warning to us. Read along with me or listen along with me, chapter four, starting in verse one. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we continue in our time of worship, not only through song, not only through our engagement of one another, not only through prayers, but also even through the listening and the receiving of your word, I just pray that you would give us an ear to hear, that you give us eyes to see that you would give us a heart that not only is able to receive or understand, but a, but a will that is desiring to follow through. And Father, we know that uh, is, there are many things that are afforded to us, that are give, gifted to us by your Spirit, and at the same time, we also know we have a formidable enemy that seeks to literally take us out. And so I just pray that this morning, Father, you give us the mind of Christ that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and that we'd be able to, to receive and that by, this, by our time here this morning, we would be further equipped, not only in our walk of faith, but also in the way in which you call us to love one another. So to that end, Father, again, we just pray that you would just continue to bless our worship in Jesus' name.
Amen. You know, in our day and age today, I don't think I need to convince you of this, but I'm just going to highlight it for us this morning. But in our day and age today, we kind of live in a very unique time. When When you look at human history for thousands of years, this last generation has been marked by incredible advancements in technology, right? I mean, you got... Our, well, our kids think smartphones have always been around, but if you've been old, if you're old enough, if you're more Gen Xer or older, you kind of realize there was once a time in which you actually had to be tethered to the wall, depending on the amount of cord you had, right? The the accordion cord, right? And you had you had to actually stay there. You weren't there was no distracted driving unless you were holding the burger in your hand and driving with your knees. But other than that, like. Smartphones have just completely changed our reality and our experience and our engagement in life. And, and because of the smartphone, it's a tool or a platform that's also uh, afforded other technologies, other advancements, other opportunities like social media. And there's the internet, which, you know, Elon Musk has the satellite thing going on. So you can be literally in the remotest part of the earth and think, oh, there's no way anybody can get me. It, it almost kind of like pushes back into the idea that, oh, I live off the grid. Nobody lives off the grid anymore because the people that are off the grid are also posting on YouTube how much they live off the grid. And so, uh, so they don't really live off the grid, right? But the fact is, we, we, we live in an, an incredible age. But as with any advancement in technology or any advancement of a, a new thing, here's the deal. We, we realize there's always pros and cons, Right? There's always pros and cons to anything that is new. Oftentimes in the beginning, we celebrate the pros. This is amazing. This is so, this will change your life in so many good ways. And then give it enough time, you realize, oh, but there's this and there's that. And oh, we didn't really foresee this happening. And so when you think about some of the downsides that result from the advancement of technology, one of those downsides of that kind of comes with this incredible advancement is this. There is unfiltered and unverified assertions of truth over numerous media sources. Anybody can say anything they want and it can go unchecked. If you have an opinion, you have a a plethora of platforms to choose from, to advance your perspective on whatever it may be. Today we call this, we, we, we classic, are classically known to, as a living in the information age. There is an abundance of information, almost too much information. It almost makes it more confusing than helpful, right? Because even though we are on the verge of being able to kind of find out anything, at the same time, there's so much you have to wade through to wonder, Is that true or is this true? Because there's a lot of contradiction over this worldwide web. It kind of is the classic warning to all of us, not that we haven't heard this before, but it's probably worth saying again, just because it's on the internet, what? Doesn't mean it's true. Just because someone has a YouTube channel doesn't make their YouTube channel always legit, right? It's why misinformation and disinformation are terms that are regularly referred to today, right? Do you know the distinction between misinformation and disinformation? Not that we're kind of going through an English class here, but let me just kind of help you understand what those mean because they get thrown around a lot, but that doesn't mean we actually know what they mean. Misinformation is information that is false or misleading or out-of-context content But it's shared without the intent to deceive. And the irony of misinformation is that we are all victims of it and purveyors of it, whether we realize it or not. Because the fact is, misinformation can happen so easily. We we can always share, oh, I heard something from somebody, and we share it as if it's true, and we've never actually taken the time to go, wait, is that actually true? Because just, just because daddy said it doesn't make it right. Just because grandpa is fully convinced doesn't make it true. But sometimes we just hear things. That's how gossip has such an effect in a negative way. We hear something from somebody, and instead of going, hey, wait a second, 
is what you're telling me true? We kind of go, oh, I can't believe that. They said that. I can't believe they did that. Oh, my goodness. i got to tell five people at least because I'll feel better about myself. There's nothing like feeling better about yourself by throwing someone else under the bus, right? But misinformation is more common than we probably would like to admit. And it is good of us to ask questions, anything that comes across our ears, for example, like saying, how do I know that what I'm hearing is true? Is the source of this truth trustworthy? And how would I even know that? Now, misinformation may be more common, but at the same time, there's also this term called disinformation, and that is purposely false or misleading information that is shared with the intent to deceive or to harm. One version of this that's obviously thrown around is called fake news, right? And again, I'm not meaning to trigger you all right now this morning because this gets us kind of like our heart rate up and he's already hot enough in this room and now we're getting a little couple degrees warmer in our bodies. Why in the world am I going here? The fact is, and I think this leads into our text well, is that information can be so easily and broadly communicated, regardless of how credible or how wacky it may be, and that, that makes it both amazing and dangerous. You see, there's many wars and conflicts that have broke out. There are economic decisions that have been made There are political movements that have advanced or digressed due to the information that it acted upon. As crazy or as dangerous as that might seem, however, there's an even greater danger. There's an an even greater enemy that is at stake that we must be wary of, that we must be uh, very much attuned to. And that danger, that greater, that greater enemy is not political disinformation or social misinformation. It is actually spiritual corruption. It is spiritual deception. And the reason why the corruption of spiritual, spiritual truth is our greatest enemy is, one, because all spiritual corruption has, has a satanic origin, Its source is satanic. Spiritual corruption or satanic disinformation, satanic deception is our greatest enemy. And the kind of the flip side of that coin is not only is that our greatest enemy, but we must understand the truth is what ultimately sets us free. And so the corruption of truth is dangerous, and that's why we need to preserve what is true and discern it from that which is error. It's important that we all do it. It's not just the pastor's responsibility. It's all followers of Jesus' responsibility. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? You are truly my disciples if you remain remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth is, will set you free. So what do you think Satan's primary strategy is to lead people astray? What do you think uh, his, his tactic is for keeping people enslaved and therefore not free? Well, there's a number of things that we could probably add, actually. This is not a, an exhaustive list in 1 John chapter 4. I mean, there's all kinds of things in which Scripture warns us of. For example, we see that, that Satan, the, our enemy, is the, an accuser, so he accuses Christians. That's why Romans 8.1 is such a, a refreshing reminder. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because guess what? Our enemy loves to accuse us. He loves to accuse you. He loves to make you doubt the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He makes you go, man, I don't know. I know God's promises, but I just feel horrible. Why? We see that our enemy empowers spiritually lost people to fight against Christians. Dave Myers just sent Pastor Tom and I a a video clip earlier this week. And, you know, we we know we have this partnership in India as a church together. And uh, right now, the, the, the Hindu extremists in India are rallying together and growing in a in a in increasing opposition. And they're saying this. 
the number one enemy in India today are Christians. And the encouragement, the exhortation is, arm yourselves, make sure your house has weapons because Christians are the number one enemy. So the enemy uses fear to discourage us and to take us out. He also causes sickness and disease. He tempts people to sin. By the way, he knows your weaknesses better than you know your weaknesses. He distracts us with the cares of this world. He can even do convincing signs and wonders. When you look back at uh, how Mo- when Moses stood before Pharaoh and, he, he, and, and God says, I'm going to show my power to Pharaoh by doing these amazing, these miraculous things. And he turns the water into blood and he, 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 he makes a staff and all of a sudden there's frogs all over the place. But guess what? The Egyptian machi- magicians did the same thing with their secret arts. None of these descriptions about Satan should be surprising to us because the Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies. And he's on a mission to destroy what God loves, which his people created in his image. That's why Jesus says that the thief's purpose in John 10 is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so you and I, we must not be naive. We, We must wake up and be on guard for the many ways in which Our enemy, Satan, seeks to destroy people and render Christians ineffective. So how do we do that? How can you and I be ready? How can we guard against false truth? How can we protect ourselves and our families and our loved ones from satanic influence? Good thing is John tells us. He doesn't leave us hanging He tells us. He tells us that we must test the spirits. And how do we test the spirits? Well, at least in our text this morning, he gives us kind of, he poses three implied questions. We test the spirits by asking do they confess the biblical Jesus? Do they possess the divine life of Jesus? And do they profess the truth of Jesus? That's really going to be our outline here this morning. And so let's jump right on into it. What does John say do to guard against the enemy's attacks, against the corruption of spiritual truth? He tells us, test the spirits. Look at verse 1 with me again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, this, this phrase, test the spirits, uh, really means to do what, what I think what John is getting at is he's, he's helping us understand when we test him, we are determining the source of someone's teaching as well as the quality of their teaching. We're really trying to, uh, to listen with a critical ear. By the way, listening critically doesn't mean you're critical. You're not a critical person when you listen with a critical ear. You're listening, but you're seeking to understand, and you're always asking, is that true, and how do I know? It's not because you're trying to be a critical person, but we're all called to be kind of defensive listeners, eager to accept and receive, but at the same time, not just being spoodful and everything as if, if someone says it is true. And so we're called to test the spirits by determining its source as well as the quality of the teaching. The fact is, all truth, listen to this, brothers and sisters, all truth has an origin. All truth has a source. Even false truth has an origin or source. And we need to understand that all spiritual truth is from God, and therefore all spiritual falsehood or false teaching is demonic. Listen to what we, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So we must always determine whether or not teachers, prophets, purveyors of truth are from God or demonically sourced. Because here's the deal. The supernatural is real. I hope I don't need to convince you of that. The supernatural is real. 
But the supernatural is not always godly. Sometimes it's demonic. And behind every prophet and every teacher and every proclamation, there's what we might call an energizing spirit. Some are from God and some are demonic. So the question is, how do we, how do we determine? How do we discern between that, is, that which is from God and that which is of the enemy? Here's my encouragement, and here's kind of implied in John's message to us. We need to watch. We need to wait. We need to listen. Again, we listen critically, discerning whether or not, is this really from God? And how would I know that? And we need to listen to the message that is being communicated. And that kind of brings us to our next point. We not only seek to discern the source, but we're also seeking to discern the quality of the message. We need to ask questions like, is the message, first of all, biblical? Is the message interpreted in its biblical context? Is the message a, maybe a new doctrine that is being purported? I mean, this is, I think, an important question to ask, by the way, because anytime someone comes up to you and says, we've had it wrong for thousands of years, but, <laughs> thankfully, you're welcome, I have figured it out, that should be a red flag to you. If someone comes up to you and says, you know what, Christendom has had it wrong for so long, but, fi- but, but, but we have the answer that should serve as an alarm. I'm not saying that what that means is like we haven't understood everything's all things theology. It doesn't mean we're always growing and learning. But at the same time, if someone's saying no one's figured it out up to this point, but you're welcome, I'm coming to you with the correct interpretation or correct message, we ought to be going, huh, I'm listening, but I'm not going to you know, take this hook, line, and sinker here, Okay? The point is, we must follow the examples of what the Bereans did. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17? Listen to the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Paul, again, Paul and Silas are kind of run out of Thessalonica because they're on the run because those people are not having it. And so they're on the run, and they go to the Berea, and it says that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. What can we learn from the Bereans? Well, they were very open to Paul and Silas's teaching. They weren't closed off. They weren't saying, nope, I've never heard this before, so I will never listen to it. My theology is already stamped. It's already permanent. I have no room for anything else to include in my theological box right now. I'm sorry. I've arrived. I've figured it out. Please say no more. No, that's not what they said. Sometimes we say that, but that's not what they said. No, they, they listened eagerly. They're like, okay, Paul and Silas, you, you got some interesting things that you're saying here. We're listening. We've never heard this quite like this before. But we're listening eagerly. But we're filtering everything through what we see in the inspired word of God, in the inspired scriptures. And the fact is we must do the same, brothers and sisters. We must filter everything that is purported as true through the word, through the lens of scripture. In fact, can I just say this? And this is an invitation for you. You should do it for IBC pastors too. Just because we're preaching up here doesn't make us infallible. We are seeking to speak on behalf of God to God's people, but at the same time, we're all a work in progress. We're all on a journey of discovery together. And so the way in which we get to help one another is by going, hey, you made a point I'm not sure if I either understand that or even agree with that. But could I just kind of also say as a way of um, qualified invitation, please be tactful in how you do that. (laughs) 
And I'm not saying, so a nasty email that, uh, or a letter that is unsigned is not really helpful. But I want you to know, we would love to sit down with you because our desire is a devotion to truth. And we want to know the truth. And if we have said something that is not right, then please let us know and help us make it right. But be, be spirit-led in the process, not fleshly motivated, okay? <laughs> amen and amen. Yes, thanks, brother. <laughs> Got one amen out of that. <laughs> Hey, can I also just say this? You ought to really be doing this for your podcast too. You know, I know everybody's got their favorite 10 podcasts that, they, that, they, uh, that, do, that uh, disciples them all day and every day. That's great. But just because your favorite teacher is your favorite doesn't make him always right or make her always right. So again, we need to listen critically because the fact is how much of our theology is informed because of our own personal diving into Scripture and how much of our theology and understanding of God is kind of given to us by someone else. That's a question for you just to ruminate on a little bit later. We need to be men and women of the Word. The way in which we're able to discern origin and quality is because we are men and women of the word so that we can test the source of every teacher's message and test the quality of every teacher's message. But there's questions that we can ask in this testing. And John really, in kind of an implied sense, gives us questions that we can actually ask in order to effectively examine someone's message or the messenger. And the first is this. We need to ask this question. Do they confess the biblical Jesus? Do they confess the biblical Jesus? Look at verses 2 and 3 with me for a moment. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. You know, one of the best questions that you can ask for the sake of any conversation, especially when someone's uh, uh, putting forth some kind of truth claim to you, especially in regards to religion or about Jesus or the gospel, the best question you can ask is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Because depending upon how someone answers that question can help you discern whether or not they're really, they're, and their message are really from God or demonically driven. For example, and I'm just going to call them out because I think it's important that we do that in a very loving and tactful fashion, but there are some religious, we call them cults, because they claim to be Christian, but they are not Christian, at least the way we define Christian. But you have Jehovah Witness, for example. Jehovah Witness believe that, Je- that Jesus is real, but they believe that Jesus is a God. You know, there's an article, a God, and it's a little g God, but not the God, definite article, capital G God. Now, to get all cram- not to get all grammatically technical here, but it matters. They believe that Jesus is a God, but not the God. And they, te- they teach that Jesus was the first creation of God, that he was once the Michael, uh, the angel, uh, the Michael, the archangel, before he appeared in the world as man. In other words, Jesus was an angel that who, became, who later became man. He is God-like, but he is definitely not the son of God. That's official Jehovah Witness doctrine. But when we ask the question, who is Jesus? Let us look to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1. I'm not going to have it on the screen here because it's too long. But you can turn in your Bibles. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Paul says this in his letter to the Colossian church. Christ is the, inv- is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. 
He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is, he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So the Bible teaches that Jesus is not just a God who became man, but he's always been God from the very beginning. He, ne- he never had a beginning. He has always existed because he's God. Or consider Mormonism, for example. Now, I know we all have some backgrounds and friends and even relatives. So this is, again, this is not a, um, this is not a religion bashing session at all. This is just helping you understand and clearly discern between truth and error. In Mormonism, they teach that Jesus is one of many gods, again, little g, and that God was once a man. They teach that Jesus was a created being, and he was actually even the brother of Lucifer. That Jesus was born of Mary, but not conceived by the Holy Spirit. No, God had sexual relations with Mary, and she bore a son named Jesus. They also teach that Jesus was the husband of both Mary and Martha, different Mary, Lazarus' sisters, and had children with with those wives as well. You wonder where polygamy came from, by the way. But what does the scripture say in Matthew 1.18, for example? Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. A little bit more separated, but you have the Muslims, and they teach that Jesus was neither divine nor the Son of God because God doesn't have any sons. In the early church, we see that the the, the heresy of Gnosticism taught that all matter was evil and therefore only the spiritual is good. Therefore, Jesus could not have come into the flesh, and this is what John is addressing here in his letter. He could not have come in the flesh because if he came in the flesh, he would be evil, and Jesus can't be evil, so therefore, he's only a spiritual being. It's what today's version of Gnosticism in the first century, we might almost have a close relationship to what's called Christian science, which as we've said before, ironically enough, is neither Christian nor science. But that is their label. The point I'm getting at is this, and we were reminded of this even this last week. It's critical that we think rightly about Jesus. It's important that we think biblically about Jesus. Because what you say about Jesus is a difference between genuine faith and a false faith. And and let me just put this out there as a way of a follow-up here. It's important that we also remember that antichrist teaching or false teaching is not necessarily an open denial of Jesus. Sometimes it's just a misinterpretation of Jesus where they either add something to who he is or or detract from who he is and his ministry. But as Jesus himself says, as he gave some very difficult teachings in Matthew 16, and we see that the crowds just wandered away and said, wait, I don't want anything to do with your flesh and blood. I'm sorry. You, I had, you had me up to this point, but you know what? You've said some pretty interesting teachings. I'm not buying into it. They walk away. And then you have Jesus standing there with his disciples, and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Actually, in Matthew 16, we see that Jesus even asked, who do you say that I am? Everybody's saying all kinds of things about me. Everybody has an idea or a perspective about me, but who, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Do teachers confess the biblical Jesus? Second question we need to ask is, do they possess the divine life of Jesus? 
John tells us in verse 4, little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, them meaning the false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now this This he that John is referring to is really the Holy Spirit that indwells all true followers of Jesus Christ. And what he's contrasting here is the followers of Jesus Christ are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the third triunity of God, whereas false teachers do not possess this same spirit. And so while some false teachers may be bold in their proclamation and and confident in their belief and winsome in their delivery and convincing in their rhetoric and able to allure many masses of people, they are still energized by a spirit that is less powerful than the Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand that. As convincing as people might be, the Holy Spirit that indwells you is far greater. You see, false prophets may be wise, but God is infinitely wiser. Satan may be great, but God is infinitely greater. The demonic realm may be powerful, but God is infinitely stronger and more powerful. And here's the craziest thing. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. Here's, here's what's incredible. This more powerful, stronger, wiser, greater spirit lives in you. He lives in you. He has taken residence in your life. That's why John is able to say, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have the divine life living in you. False teachers do not possess this divine life. And to take it one step further, really, the the way that divine life is manifested or or more fully displayed is you just, again, as we were encouraged earlier, you need to watch, you need to wait, you need to listen. Eventually, you who are filled with the Holy Spirit ought to exude this fruit of the Spirit. You can listen to last summer's series through the fruit of the Spirit. But those who do not possess the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, they may be nice, they may be able to, to appeal to you and convince you in some way, but watch their life long enough and eventually you start seeing the cracks. They are no longer what uh, the literal definition of what sincere means. They're not legitimate. There's some flaws that are like, huh, something's not quite right. Well, third and quickly, do they profess the truth of Jesus? Do they listen to the truth of Jesus? John says in verse 5 and 6, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You know, one thing we need to kind of have a come to grips with or be a little more relaxed on is this, and not relaxed because you're uncaring or because you uh, don't care for people that are lost, but we should never be surprised that when lost people act like lost people and speak like lost people and even listen to lost people, because guess what? They're lost, and so in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a sense that John is speaking to here, lost people listen to people that speak their own language. And so false teachers are speaking a language that is demonically uh, originated, whether they realize it or not. And, they, and so people that are lost also listen to them. But as Jesus says in John 8, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. False teachers speak a language that is consistent with the world, and while their message may sound correct, we will ultimately know by evaluating every truth claim through the Scriptures. After all, the Spirit of God does not work independently from the Scriptures. It always works with it and through it. So three questions John tells us. Test the spirits, and the way in which you and I test the spirits that we test the message as well as the messenger is by asking, first of all, do they believe in the biblical Jesus? Do they possess the divine life of Jesus? 
Do they profess the truth of Jesus? And I'm almost done, but I have some points of application I want to offer you this morning. First point of application. Just because people use the same language as you do does not mean they mean the same thing as you do. You know, so there's, there's, a, there's an easy way to identify religions and other faith systems that are very different from you because we don't even use the same language in a sense. But there are a lot of religions and even false religions that are under the umbrella of what we call Christian. But we're not talking the same thing. So just because someone says, I'm Christian, doesn't mean you like, oh, I'm a Christian too. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is great. Maybe. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be eager to celebrate that truth, but it may not be true. And so it's helpful to, let me just encourage you in this way, when someone starts using language, it's really good to say, what do you mean when you say that you believe in Jesus? That you're a Christian, that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Because again, what makes it convoluted, what makes it very difficult to discern truth from error is that Satan doesn't always use crazy, wacky, false claims out there. He takes truth, corrupts the truth, and convinces you that it seems right. And yet if you're a critical listener you, and you listen long enough, you go, wait, something's not quite right. It also begs the question, for you to discern what is right, you need to know what is right. Which means that you, as, as, as followers of Jesus, you need to become an astute student of God's word. We cannot discern truth from error if we don't even know the truth from error. And I know, I, know, I know we can all probably acknowledge it. Maybe you even did this for your New Year's resolutions. I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. You know, I'm going to memorize more, whatever it is. But let me just say this, brothers and sisters, there's an enemy that is out to destroy you and your family and your loved ones and your co-workers. And even if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, his, his next goal is because he can't change that reality. He can't change that relationship. But you know what he can do? He can render, your, render you ineffective and useless and joyless and lifeless. And so it's imperative that you and I become students of Scripture because the Scripture is God's revelation to us. It's Him speaking to us. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to to help us discern and to grow and to refine and to literally transform us. Second point of application and this comes down to translation difficulty. You know, one of the challenges, and I don't want to like, I don't want you to uh, doubt your translation, uh, your English translation at all. That's not what I'm intending to do here. But any, you know, anybody that has an idea, is a linguist or has an understanding of other languages, we have our Ukrainian family in here somewhere. Where are they at? Somewhere. There they are on the back right there. They're learning English like crazy right now, but there's always a... From going from Ukrainian to English, there's, there's an obstacle, right? And you can't translate word for word all the times. Sometimes it's word for phrase and phrase for word. And that's what the English translation is trying to do. And so we oftentimes see in, in 1 John, as well as all the, the New Testament letters, the translation can be difficult to capture. And one of those translation uh, differences is that when, when we translate in the English, you, Y-O-U, it doesn't distinguish between singular and plural, which is very distinguishable in the Greek. Now, in context, you can maybe pick it up, but even sometimes that doesn't allow for that. But when you look at the Greek, sometimes, in fact, more often than not, John's reference of you is never singular. It is always plural. And so we oftentimes, in our very independent, autonomous, Western mindset, we always think, oh, God is just me, myself, and I, and God right now. And actually, John's whole context is like, I'm not even talking about any one person. I'm talking about the church. You, plural. Why in the world does that even matter? 
Here's why. Discernment is a corporate endeavor. Identifying false teaching and discerning truth from error is not just an individual exercise. We need one another. We need all of us to be students of the word so we can help one another. It is a church-wide warning and exhortation. When John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, he's saying, you plural. And one of the greatest services that you can do individually for Christ's church is to be a man and a woman devoted to Scripture so that you can actually help discern truth from error. Another point of application, and that is more of a word of caution. Please listen to me. Just because you disagree with someone over a theological issue does not mean they're a heretic. It could mean that you are. Just kidding. (laughs) But in all seriousness, we have to be careful how quickly we label someone as a heretic or a false teacher. Now, you might be thinking I'm backtracking in what I just said, and I'm not. I'm actually qualifying because so easily we're going, if someone doesn't think like me and act like me and believe like me, then they're not of me. And of course, I'm right and they're wrong. No, no, that's not always true. We must be slow to label people as false teachers. Yes, on the one hand, the church really serves as a sort of custodian to apostolic authority, right? We, we must, as a church, preserve the theology and the, the doctrine that has been passed down for generations and generations. And at the same time, we need to recognize when to agree to disagree and when to part ways. You know, one observation I think I've made in kind of the evangelical church is that we don't do well with, we don't do well with people like, not like us. And if you take that to the logical nth degree, eventually you're alone. Because eventually you find something you disagree with somebody about. And so it makes you have to take a step back going, maybe that's not really the spirit of Christ. Maybe that's not really what Jesus intended for his church. Maybe we're called to love one another because love covers everything. Yes, truth matters, absolutely, 100%. John is making a big point about it here, but at the same time, We can be with people that are not quite like us. And we can link arms with people that are not quite like us. It's okay. By the way, this is probably a good opportunity to go, there's a worship thing going on at Revolution Church on the 20th. Wait, Revolution Church isn't like us. They they believe differently. I know. That's okay. That brings us to our next point here. We need to recognize that a cult system is a system of belief that claims to be Christian but is veered away from the apostolic teaching of the Scripture, which means they've moved away from those things of primary importance. What are the issues of primary importance that we must stick to that are non-negotiable, that we cannot compromise on? Anything to do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything that has to do with what does it mean to be saved and accepted before God. Those are foundational, non-negotiable issues of primary importance. But beyond that, there are ways and reasons in which we can go, yeah, maybe we're not going to, we don't see eye to eye on a number of things, but we can regard one another rightly. We can regard one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In other words, what Jesus desires for his church is that the church of Port Angeles, not the church of IBC only, but the church of Port Angeles would come together and be unified as one. All those who profess the name of the biblical Jesus, who recognize that their only way and hope of salvation is through Jesus and his finished work on the the cross. But they don't baptize like we baptize. Okay, they have a different view on maybe the, the, the communion or the Eucharist. Okay. Yeah, there are some very real differences. 
And I know I'm, you know, I'm getting kind of right in this little gray area here, right? But the fact is, we need the mind of Christ, and we need to understand the heart of Christ, and that he desires unity for his church. So be careful how quickly you label someone a false teacher just because they don't think like you do or believe like you do. Third and finally, I, I know this is the last one. Even though false prophets or false teachers are energized by demonic forces, this does not mean that they know they are. You see what happens so often is we go, they're a false teacher. It's verifiable. I've opened the scriptures. They're wrong. Enemy. But are they? Or are they minions and victims of the enemy? What would it look like is if we were honest and truthful and said, yeah, their teaching is false, but my response isn't to label them and demonize them, but to pray for them. Pray that God would give them eyes to see because they are lost and in need of a savior. What if our heart had a compassion for them? What if our heart just like, oh man, they, they're so lost, but I pray that God, you would give them eyes to see that they would understand the true biblical Jesus and that he would set them free. What if that was our response? I'm always encouraged by the fact that Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And he arrived at Damascus as Paul, who would later be the apostle of Jesus and who would be an ambassador for the cause of Christ. Paul wasn't the enemy. He was definitely used by the enemy. But God says, nope, he's mine. And I'm going to use him. And I'm going to glorify myself through him. So may our hearts break, not become hardened towards those who might purvey a false truth and reach them with the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 